Well, good morning. Good morning to everybody who's on site and those joining us online as well. I don't know about you, but I am really looking forward to next week's kickoff cookoff. Anybody else interested? Thank you. There's a couple. Yes. Now, I want to invite all of you to make sure that you come back. I know that this is a long weekend and many people are away or watching online today. And so I just want to say, if you're watching online, come join us in person next week because it's a lot more fun with you here than, uh, than with you not here. So please come. Bring something to share. Even if you're not going to enter into the, to the uh, competition, the cooking competition, just bring something to share because this is a potluck. And so we want to make sure we have enough food for everybody to enjoy. But if you think your dish just might be worthy of that trophy, that some wonderful people have won in the past. We would love to have you enter into the, uh, the cook-off portion of that weekend. So please keep that in mind. Uh, don't wait. If you're planning to do that, sign up right now. You can even do it, as Zach said, through the Pew Portal online there as well. Uh, next week, we're also going to be starting a new sermon series. That means that we are ending the series, our summer series, today. Our series we've been going through, 10 Words to Live By. We're even walking through and taking a deeper look at the Ten Commandments found in Exodus chapter 20. See, we're learning. There we go. Exodus chapter 20 is where we find those. And many people have said how they've enjoyed this series and very blessed by it. And I genuinely, sincerely appreciate the comments and the encouragement I've received from you regarding that. And I know it's not just flattery, right? If you were with us last week, you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Well, this week we're going to conclude the series. And we're going to be talking about the 10th word to live by that begins like this. You shall not covet your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor. This word covet, it's one that we probably know. The feeling of covetous is something that we're familiar with probably to some degree. This idea of to have a desire, to, to have a craving. When, uh, when a couple years ago in another house we had in Prince George, we had this little wall decoration that said it was the country ten commandments. And it, it talked about covetousness as having, a, having a, a hankering for, having a hankering for your neighbor's tractor kind of thing. So to have a desire, to have a craving, to have a hankering for something. This is the idea that something that you don't have but that others do. And, and then... God goes on here in the commandment to give us examples. For example, do not cover your neighbor's house, his, his wife, his servants, his, his ox or his donkey. I don't think I've ever coveted an ox or a donkey, but hey, some people may have had a challenge with that. So he gives these as examples. And here's the thing, regardless of what the example is, the problem is not that we don't have. It's not that I don't have a house. It's not that I don't have a wife. The issue when it comes to coveting quite often is not that we don't have, it's that I don't have that one. Don't have that one. Don't have the one that my neighbor has. No, I, I have a house, but my, my neighbor's house has nicer grass. I, I, I have a car that I can drive to work and to church, and, and it drives okay, but it breaks down sometimes, but, but hers doesn't break down. I, I'm blessed with kids, but, but theirs seems to get along better. I, I have a wife, but, but his seems happier. I, I have a husband, but, but hers seems to have more money in the bank and less around the tank. Right? Th- th- things like this. We look at what we don't have, even though we have, we look at what we don't have. And there's an endless stuff of things. I could spend the next half hour up here talking about the endless list of things that we can covet, the different stuff, the different situations that can lead us to covetous feelings. Something that God gave somebody else that he didn't give to us. But here's an interesting thing about this 10th commandment. That it's curious that it's kind of included. It's kind of surprising in a way that's included. Because keep in mind, God is delivering these directly by the word of God to the nation of Israel who was gathered at the mount, who just a few days ago were slaves. 
What could they possibly have of value? What could they possibly own that somebody else is looking at going, well, I haven't got that. What do they possibly have of value? But, but that shows us another aspect of covetousness. See, it's not an issue about the value. It's not an issue about the quantity of the possession. It gets us back to this idea, it's about the absence of the possession. It's not that I don't have, it's that I don't have that one. It's not that I don't have, it's that I don't have theirs. And this word to live by speaks to something deep within the human nature that exists in all people. This, this tendency that exists within us to, to want to value ourselves and to define ourselves by what we have or by what they have. And then comparison comes in. I've seen this in so many fields of life. As being a pastor for the last almost 17 years, I, I've worked with many people who are underhoused and underemployed and, and sometimes live on the streets. And it's amazing when you talk to, to people who are homeless, they're actually, and especially the ones who collect cans, you've probably seen these people pushing carts down the road with cans, they're amazingly territorial when it comes to their can collection. They know who collects where on what nights, and they have it all mapped out. It's extremely territorial. And if somebody else, if another underhoused person, has a lucrative can collecting area, they will plot and plan to harm and steal that person to get that area. They're so territorial with things like this. But it's not just people who don't have. We see the exact same thing happen with billionaires who are territorial over the space race who covet one another's rocket ships and contracts with the government, who covet who has the most tourist plan, who has the fastest, the best rocket. It doesn't matter if it's the homelessness to the billionaire. This is something that speaks to the human nature that exists within all people. This persistent awareness of a gap that exists between what we expect and what we really have. And in that gap, between the gap of our expectations and our reality, that is where covetousness lives. Hey guys, I got you each a gift. No way, Jesus, why? Awesome. Well, I just love you guys, so I wanted to get you something. <laughs> so nice. Laura, you first. Wow, this is so exciting. Oh, will you look at this, a little eight ounce can of Coke? This is perfect for me. I looked everywhere to find a gift for you and this just seemed to fit. I love it. Drew, yeah, your turn. All right. <laughs> no way, Jesus, seriously? Oh yeah. 20 ounces of Coke? Yeah, baby. Woo! This is awesome. Oh, Jesus, thank you so much. You're welcome. Laura, we gotta go show Richard our gifts. Come on. Okay. Hey, Laura, is there a problem? No. I mean, well, yeah, kind of, you know? It's just that every time you give people gifts, you always give everyone else more than you give me. What do you mean? I mean, like, I open my gift and, oh, cute, eight ounces, and then Drew opens his gift and, hello, 20 ounces. Oh, I know what you mean. Well, that gift is for Drew. Well, that's what I want. Go get it for me. Okay, if that's what you want. Yeah. I got a liter. Whoa. I know it's one liter of God's sweet goodness. Jesus gave it to me. He did? Yes. <gasps> okay, you know what? You're going to meet somebody with a bigger bottle, and you are going to be so mad. Laura, check it out. I got an upgrade. Coke 3.0. That is awesome. I know. <laughs> well, isn't that just great? Yeah. Hey, Jesus, you rock! Yeah. Thanks, what Drew. What is wrong with you? Why are you holding back your best from me? I gave you my best. Don't you see what's happening here? You're letting everyone else's gifts steal your joy. No, Jesus, you are stealing my joy by giving everyone else more than you give me. Laura, I picked this gift out for you. That's what I wanted you to see. I don't care. Until you can look past this, all you're going to see 
is a can of Coke. See, here's something I want us to know today. Is that God adores you. And he handpicks gifts and blessings and talents and abilities and opportunities. And he offers them, he gifts them to us. But if our focus is so powerfully upon what we don't have, we miss it. We're going to miss it. All we can see is the gap that exists between our expectations and reality. And in that gap is where discontentment sits in. And when discontentment leads to covetousness, and covetousness leads to a gap in our relationships. In our relationships between us and God. In our relationships between us and one another. So let's unpack this a bit further as we go today. You see, to some degree, coveting and yearning for more, this, sometimes the world speaks of this as the, the keeping up with the Joneses by knowing what they have and what we don't. That, that's just part of our society. That, that's sort of accepted as a common aspect of our society. But if it's so common and if it's just a natural thing that should exist within society, why in God's wisdom did he see it being worthy to include in the top ten words to live by? Of all the things he could have included in his top ten, he included this one. And so there must be more to it than just a common part of society. And see, it's what I want to pack a bit further, because there's something very, very unique about this tenth one. A couple things, actually, but here's the first one. Is that you can, this is the only word to live by, the only commandment that you can break without even doing anything. Here's what I mean by that. Let me show you what I mean by that. All of the Ten Commandments are broken through an observable action. For example, we, you know, going back to kind of the beginning, you can make an idol. You can speak words against God. You can avoid resting, actively do something else to avoid resting on the Sabbath. You can actively dishonor your parents. You have to commit adultery. You have to commit murder. You have to take something to steal. You have to speak and tell something to bear false witness, but not with coveting. With coveting, it's not a matter of if you take something from another person or not. It doesn't matter if you follow through on that action. If you take something or not, because coveting is a sin that hides in the heart. It hides in the heart. Now, I'll show you an example of what I mean by this. A lot of people know that I drive a Dodge truck. It's 12 years old. It's got a little bit of rust, but it drives like new still. And I love my truck. I can't tell you how many times I've boosted Trevor's Ford or, or how many times I've pulled Daniel's Chevy and GMC out of the ditch. I, I love my Dodge. It's just, I know, you're pushing back already. Just go with me on this. Pastor wouldn't lie, right? That was last. We don't lie. Right? <laughs> I love my Dodge. I love it. But if I get home and my neighbor pulls up in a brand new 2022 Dodge sport truck, I'm going to be like, wow, <laughs> that's that's a nice truck. And he'd be like, thanks, I just picked it up. I should take you for a spin sometime. And I'd be like, sounds good. I, I, I'm, really <laughs> happy. I, I'm really happy for you. <laughs> That's how I'm feeling. My, those are my words. What am I thinking? I'm thinking my truck sucks in that moment. I'm thinking I want a new truck. I'm thinking how do I get, how, how do I afford that truck? I'm thinking... How mad would Nadine get and for how long if I went and got that truck? <laughs> These are the things that I'm thinking. What am I feeling? I'm feeling discontentment. Even though my truck drives like new, I just told you I love my truck. You know, Trevor and Daniel love my truck too because it helps them with their trucks. They, I love my truck. 
and yet I'm suddenly feeling less than I did before because of his. Maybe I'm even feeling cheated because I work just as hard as he does. I work just as hard. I mean, I may not even talk to him for a little while because every time I see him, all I can think of is his truck. And I might even have a little chat with God. But why do I have to drive the same truck for 12 years? And he gets to go get a new one. Am I going to go key his truck at night, actively damaging it? No, I'm not. Am I going to go steal his truck and park it in my driveway and go, hey, me too? <laughs> I go, it's a little suspicious, I know, but look, I got one too. No, I'm not. I'm not going to actively do any of those things. But did I sin? I did. I sinned because coveting is a sin that resides in the heart. It resides in the heart whether I act on those things or not. You see, and this may seem harmless. It, it may seem harmless, but covetousness can also be understood as wrongly directed love. It's another way we could define covetousness. Wrongly directed love. Where even though we don't steal, I don't actively steal from another person, coveting in my heart actively steals life from my relationships with that person. Does that make sense? Even though I don't actively steal from them, coveting actively steals life from my relationships with them and even with God. You see, when it comes to relationships with others, anytime that I value my potential relationship with their stuff, or if I value my potential relationship with their circumstances ahead of them, that's damaging to the relationship. We can see how that would happen. That's damaging to my relationship with them because I value their stuff ahead of them. We see an example of this in Luke chapter 12, when Jesus encountered uh, two brothers, one, one brother in particular who did all the talking, but there's these two brothers who come to Jesus and one of them is feeling this discontentment that's leading to coveting what his brother is about to have. And in Luke chapter 12, verse 13, uh, he says to Jesus, the younger brother says to Jesus, tell my older brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now what's happening in that statement? You see, the older brother was not holding out on the younger brother. That's not taking place. It's just that the, the older brother is always entitled to double the portion that the other brothers would get. He intended to double the portion. And so the younger brother sees the gap. He sees the gap. My older brother is going to get twice as much as I get. There's a gap that exists. And knowing that that's going to happen leads to discontentment in the gap. And that discontentment leads to covetousness. And that covetousness leads to the selfish request of Jesus. Tell him to split it evenly with me. And the fact that he's willing to go to a rabbi to ask to resolve this situation is evidence enough for us to understand that he, this younger brother values the relationship with this money. He values the relationship with the potential land he'll get from the dad more than he values the relationship with his brother. And Jesus responds to him in verse 15. And he says this to him. He says, take care. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. Jesus is saying, even if you get everything you want, even if you get everything that you've ever coveted, never desired, even if you get that, you will still not have abundant life. Because as long as you are coveting your brother, your neighbor's stuff, if you're coveting your brother, your neighbor's circumstances, you have wrongly directed love. It's directed towards things instead of the person. And it is impossible to have a strong, healthy relationship with another person if we can't see past the can of Coke that they hold in their hand. But the friction that we might feel between us and another person doesn't end there. That's not the limits for it. Because for people of faith, it goes a step further. 
but people of faith that actually extends to their relationship with God. And remember back to week one, the first few weeks of this series, this, we talked about these different words to live by. Remember what some of the first ones were. God said the first commandment, you shall have no other gods beside me. In, in light of what we're talking about today, we could understand that commandment to be, you shall have no other first love in your heart but me. God wants to be the first love in our hearts. And if we are coveting something else, if we have wrongly directed love towards something else, that can be damaging to our relationship with God because that thing takes first place in our driving forces and our planning, our prioritizing, our ambitions, as opposed to God who wants to be first place. We actually see an example of this in a very common story, but sometimes this aspect of it gets missed in, in Matthew chapter 19. It's a story you're probably familiar with if you've you know, been to Sunday school or, or church for a while. You probably have come across this. In, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is asked a classic question by another young rich man. He says, Jesus, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? What good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Also known as, Jesus, what good thing must I do to be saved? What, what good thing must I do to have the good version of the afterlife? What, what good thing must I do to have right relationship with God? Is the nature of the question. And Jesus' response to him draws actually to attention some of the Ten Commandments. Some of the, ten, some of the words to live by that he could actively do. And do well. Some of the good things he could actively do. Jesus said to him, well, you know what the Ten Commandments say. They say things like, you should not murder. You shouldn't commit adultery. You shouldn't steal. You shouldn't give false witness. You should honor your mother and father. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's what he tells him. You notice what's missing? He didn't list them all. Jesus didn't list them all. Do you notice what's missing from there? We've been studying these for the last ten weeks. Maybe it's a little quick quiz. We're not going to take any scores. We're not going to put your hands up. Sorry? God stuff. We're missing the God stuff, the first four. But we're also missing the 10th one. We're missing the first four, and we're missing the 10th one. Jesus, and the man replies, I've kept all of these. What else possibly could there be? And now Jesus gets to the heart of the issue. When he says to the man, go sell everything you own and give it to the poor. Not because wealth was evil. Not because... It's wrong to have money and aspirations of success. It's not because of those things. It's because the rich man had wrongly placed, wrongly directed love in his heart. His, his heart, his first love was wealth and self, was the problem that this man had. And so Jesus didn't ask him about the 10th one, about coveting, because he knows the man's already breaking it by the nature of the question, by the nature of what he's doing. He already knows the guy's breaking the 10th commandment. Because he's coveting life's possessions. He's coveting what he can achieve and attain on his own. And therefore, Jesus doesn't need to ask him about the first four either that had to do with our relationship with God. Because if he's already breaking the 10th one, he's breaking the first ones. And don't miss this. Don't miss this in this passage. Because it is impossible to break the 10th commandment without also breaking the first commandment. Because if you have wrongly directed love to coveting things in your heart, you are breaking the first commandment because the first love of your heart is to be God. Does that make sense? And that's why we can say that the less content we are in our hearts, the less we will honor God and the less we'll honor others in our relationships. So unpacking this, I hope it helps you to see the significance of this word to live by. That while society may say that this is it's commonplace, 
It's just a natural part. We want and we get and we give. and it, You know, just wanting more than I have and seeing the gap. That's it, commonplace is what the world kind of says. But I hope unpacking this so far, we can see that this is not just a simple thing. That this is significant and worthy of being in God's top ten words to live by. So if we're going to succeed in abiding by this tenth word to live by, how are we going to do that? I want to suggest to you briefly that it begins by knowing where covetousness comes from. And and where it comes from is only partially found in the present situations and circumstances that we find ourselves in. It actually, to a large part, is formed in our past. I'll show you an example of this from the Bible as well. Now, remember, we're talking about the nation of Israel here who's receiving these commandments from the word of God. The nation of Israel recently had been slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years. And, and, And that was their experience of the past. And, and their Egyptian experience was something that they simultaneously loathed and loved. And we can see this in how they talk in the wilderness. We see every time that their bellies rumble, every time their bellies rumble, what do they say? They look back with longing and go, we should go back to Egypt where our pots were full and we had vegetables to eat. It was the good life. They, they had this, this loving, this, this odd sometimes, but this idea of loving the past that they had while they were in slavery. But at the same time, they know the sting of slavery. They know the sting of being subjected to another's will and having to serve them in this servitude that they have. And that experience of the past, while they they may have this sense of love for what they had while they're there, they also feel the sting and they loathe what they experienced there. And it builds this intense desire with them to one day have their own kingdom. To one day have their own king, because then we will know that we are established as our own kingdom, and we'll be able to declare to the world that we are not slaves anymore. And this experience of the past is so powerful that even after God delivers them from Egypt, even after he guides them through the wilderness and protects them for 40 years in the wilderness, even after all of that happens, even after he brings them into the promised land and establishes them as a powerful nation, the day soon comes when the elders arrive at Samuel's doorstep God's prophet of the time, they knock on his door and they say in 1 Samuel 8, "Uh, Samuel, we want a king. We want a king over us. Why? Because then we'll be just like all the other nations. We're a nation ourselves now. We have this memory that was formed in the past. And now we're looking at the present situation and all the other kingdoms seem to have kings. Well, we need to have a king too. They see a gap between what they expect and the reality and they, form this, they fill this gap of going, we want a king. See, their past experiences, whether they loved them or loathed them, planted a seed of what they would want and not want in the future. And as they make a present observation of the world around them, they observe that other nations have kingdoms and therefore we don't have a kingdom, we need a king. And this affects us too. It affects the way that we view our present and, and what we tend to covet is greatly shaped by our past experiences. Consider, for example, what you were looking for, are or previously were looking for, in a spouse. If you look at the definition of, you know, the perfect husband, the perfect wife for me, and the way that you itemize that, it is going to be shaped significantly by what you witnessed and what you experienced in your home growing up. Your past experiences affect what you presently want. And you might be thinking now, based upon past experiences, I want a husband who is handy, handsome, honest, and not home on time. Those might be the things you want, based upon what did or didn't happen in your home growing up. 
You may look at the house you want to live in and say, the type of neighborhood I grew up in is determining where I'm willing to live. I saw a post on Facebook this week of a a lady asking for prayer because her husband is a pastor and he's feeling called to go to Mexico to do missions in very low, like, like impoverished slums in Mexico. And she's like, I have never lived outside of basically a gated community, and there is no way I'm going to learn Spanish and, and live in a 10 by 15 cement house, even if it means serving the poor. Why would she say that? It's not because she has a mean heart or something. A lot of that is based upon what she grew up, what she experienced, what she's willing to accept in the present is based upon her past. Your body image is another example. If you were teased as a child, or if you had unhealthy images modeled for you by society and paid attention to that, it forms your present idea about yourself. It determines who you will idolize and who you'll strive to look like. You see, it's not just about the present opportunities that exist. It's not about the things that we just observe in the present. It's also shaped in the past that informs what we expect today. And then you add to that present experiences. You add on top of that what the world presents as the version of the good life. And they present this version of the good life And our expectations are formed. What we expect for a home and for a spouse and for relationships and for work and for vacations are shaped by our past experiences and the world's present definition. And when that happens, suddenly a gap appears. A gap appears between what we expect and what reality is in our lives. And if that gap exists, discontentment exists within that gap. And discontentment leads to covetousness. Coveting lives in the gap and is fueled by the gap. When expectations and realities lead to a gap, it's fueling covetousness within us. What's the world's solution? The world says, fill in the gap. Work harder. Buy more. Hide your brokenness. Put up a strong persona in front of you. Just present a good image. Fill in the gap is the world's perspective. That's the world's solution. More stuff, which actually serves to widen the gap. Social media is a great example of this, and this, this isn't a new concept, but it, it relates to this. Whenever you look on social media, people are posting the ideal vacation picture. They've got their toes in the sand, right? Everyone does the toe in the sand picture when they're, when they're in Mexico. They may, it's maybe at the playground, but we don't know, right? Toes in the sand, ideal vacation. The ideal experience, the ideal night out, and we take a picture of this gourmet meal, that's before. It's just the ideal family is we, we all post our happy kids with their signs going back to school. Right? The ideal scenario. Nobody ever puts a picture of like reality. The perfect staycation. Here's my feet in my carpet. <laughs> Staying home. <laughs> no one ever posts a picture of the burnt lasagna that, that's on there. No one ever picks a picture of those kids who were happy one day, but now you're yelling and screaming about math homework, you know, three days later. Those ones don't show up. There, there's this, this sense that we need to fill the gap with something. That's the world's solution to it. Uh, but that's kind of the problem, is that the gap is based upon the idealized world. And what is an ideal anyways? Well, Webster's Dictionary defines an ideal as existing as a mental image and imagination only. It's something that exists in our minds, And something that we've dreamed up. Where we look at a picture and we create the story behind the picture. It's idealized. It doesn't exist in reality. It's not real. 
It might be based on something real. And being based upon something real, it creates a desire. It it creates a a sense of desire for contentment associated with that that exists within our mind, but it is unattainable. And when it becomes unattainable, it leads to discontentment. Why? Because it's detached from reality. And that is the enemy of contentment. And it's also the friend of covetousness. So what's the solution? If the solution is not to feed the gap... Maybe the solution is to, is to deny reality. Well, I'm even going to unpack that one. You know that's not true. So if the solution isn't to fill the gap, and if it's not to deny reality, that means that the solution rests with addressing expectations. And I believe the greatest example of this that we find is in the writings of Paul. When Paul was writing his letter to the church in Philippi, he's sitting in jail. Now, here's Paul's past. In the past... Paul was, was kind of high-born, educated, powerful Jewish leader, Roman citizen. He was a well-known, well-respected, access to many of life's wealths and privileges. It was kind of the past he grew up in. His present, house arrest in Rome for preaching the good news of Jesus. Limited access to people. Limited access to resources. Anywhere he goes, he's got an armed guard with him. For two years, he lives in this situation, not knowing that if the whims of the emperor, he will live or he will die. You can easily see how a gap would exist, couldn't you? From what he experienced in the past would lead to some expectations that are very different than the reality that he was currently living in jail. A gap can exist within that. Can we see that? I deserve better, he could very easily say. God, why, why are you letting this happen to me while others, scoundrels, are going free? God, why are you letting this happen to me? I deserve better, is what he could think. And such thinking and feeling would lead to that discontentment, and discontentment would lead to coveting others' circumstances, and it would create a gap between him and God if he allowed his mind to go there. But that's not what he does. What's his perspective? Here's his perspective. In Philippians chapter 4, he says this. Here's his perspective. He says, I have learned the secret. I have learned the secret of being content in every and all situations. Want to advance to the next slide? Talks about learning the secret. What is that secret in every and all situations? You see, like us, Paul had high points and he had low points. He had times where everything he touched went well and went great. He had, he had hard times where everything he touched seemed to go wrong. He had all these sorts of situations in his life, but he claims that regardless of those, that he's learned the secret of contentment that endures, that transcends the situations that he finds himself in. What's this lesson? What's this lesson is that expectations are not formed or to be found within ourselves or within the world around us, but he continues the verse by saying that here's what I've learned, is that I can do all things through him. I can do all things through Jesus Christ who gives me strength. What did Paul expect Paul expected Jesus. What did Paul experience? He experienced the grace, truth, and love of Jesus. Paul expected to experience Jesus. He expected to spend eternity with Jesus. Did he want to gain and be surrounded by by good food, friends, and fortune? Yes. Of course he did. But it wasn't a driving purpose in his life. He wasn't coveting after those things. So they did not form a gap 
because he wasn't expecting them. He wasn't experiencing them. That would form a gap. He wasn't expecting them, so no gap existed. How is that possible? Because all he expected was Jesus. And in reality, he had Jesus. So there was no gap. There was simply an overlap. No gap existed. There was simply an overlap. And because of that, Paul had contentment in his heart, and he could write this epistle of joy, even in the most unjoyous expectations and situations which he found himself in. If it wasn't for that, he probably would have coveted what others had. Now, this is not a a lesson on minimizing or glossing over the realities and the struggles that exist in many people's lives and saying, just Jesus, just Jesus. That's, That's not what this message is. There are people in our midst and in our community who have health challenges and fears. They don't know where that's heading. There are people who feel like they will never get ahead. I just try and scrape and scrape, and I never seem to get ahead. There are people in our congregation who have lost loved ones. They had a funeral here yesterday for Ivan. There are families from the Ukraine who come by the church on a weekly basis looking for, for the food bank and for, for groceries. And, and people who had a life, careers and a home and kids in school and, and, and churches to go to. And now they are there here and, and saying, I have two chairs. I have, I have safety, but I have two chairs. There are real problems in life. This is not glossing over these problems in life. It's, it's not a lesson in saying that it's wrong to strive for more. It's, it's not about saying that I, that I shouldn't crave more in my life. That's not what it's about. What it's saying is that even if you have all of those things in your life, if Jesus is not your first love, you will not have life in abundance. If that's all that there is, you will constantly be searching for something more. Something that will never satisfy in this life and it will lead you to continually covet the things of this world. But if Jesus Christ is your first love, if he is your first love, if he is your heart's desire, then he will be with you in the midst of the highs and with you in the midst of the lows. And that is one thing in this life that we all need that can never be taken away from us. It is the one thing in this life that if we expect, we receive And there is no gap. There's just an overlap. Amen? You know what, folks? That's what we get to celebrate when we come to this table of communion. That's what we can celebrate at the communion table. See, the means by which we can celebrate Jesus and the means by which we can receive Jesus is not through our own striving, through our own efforts, through our own desires even. The means by which we can have this overlap in our lives emerges from God's effort from his desires and from his worth. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, for God so desired to have a relationship with all people, that he gave his one and only son. He sent his son Jesus to come, to live, to teach, ultimately to die as a sacrifice for our sins in our place. For God so loved the world that he sent Jesus in our place So that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. Out of God's desire, out of God's effort, he is the one worthy to give us that gift. If there's one thing that our hearts should desire, it is that. And the elements on this table represent that very thing. The the bread symbolic of his body in which he dwelt and lived and, and ultimately offered in our place as he died. In the cup, symbolic of his blood that was poured out to cover over a multitude of sins, your sins, my sins, to make this relationship possible.
so that when somebody hears the good news, that God loves them, that he sent his son to pay the price for their sins that create a gap between us and him, and that he is the one who bridges that gap. When we hear the good news that that has been made possible, when we then believe it in our hearts that this is the truth of Jesus Christ, and we confess our need for that forgiveness, in that moment we receive new life with Christ. And that's what we do here at West Meadows. We invite people to experience new life with Jesus by living out his grace, truth, and love. If you have never said yes to Jesus, if you have never maybe heard that good news gospel before, if you've heard it but it's never resonated with you, but right now in your heart you're saying, yes, I understand my need of it. You can say yes to Jesus right where you sit right now. And you can, you can acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God who paid the price for our sins, for your sins, and confess your need of his forgiveness. Or, or maybe you're a person who's here and perhaps you've wandered. You know, we're, we're at this last long weekend before our ministry kickoff, and, and really in some ways, we've been back to church for a while, but really this next coming weekend, it's, it's kind of the, it's the big one, folks. Like this is the first big ministry launch post-COVID, the first big ministry launch in a few years, and there are many people who have wandered over those years. There are many people who have, who have kind of strayed and, and, and become a little lax on their, not just their church attendance, but their relationship, investing in the relationship with God. And if that speaks to you as well, then right now you need to acknowledge that God has not been the first place in your heart. And maybe this is a moment to confess that. Maybe this is a moment to confess that and to take these elements to seal that commitment. To say, I've wandered, but thank you, Jesus. I want that overlap. I'm tired of the gap. And so I want to give you a moment right now just to, just to pray about these things in, in the silence and to prepare our hearts to receive these elements, to take them. There may be things that we need to confess to God or, or things that we're going to commit to confess to one another. Or maybe you'll look over the past few weeks and think of the ten words to live by and there's one that you know you really need to own. And let's give you a moment to think of those things and then I'll meet you at the table where we'll take communion together. If you did not receive an element when you came in, you can just put your hand up and an usher will bring some to you now.